uh, an old Mythbusters episode, which, um, you know, take it with a grain of salt because it's <laughs> quote unquote science, but uh, they do some interesting was it things. Was peer-reviewed? Uh, it was edited. So. <laughs> By their peers. Yeah. Yes. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. And we have a bit of a different uh, different tack that we're taking today. We're actually going to speak to a good friend of mine who's uh, a well, a professor at the University of Waterloo. And uh, this is Sean Peterson joining us today. And I can say from firsthand experience, he has the patience of a saint because he's been on my PhD committee for the, the better part of a decade now. So welcome to the show, Sean. Well, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, our pleasure. So I think one of the big things that we wanted to talk to you about today was just the procedure of academic research and why things, especially in this, this COVID-19 era, uh, why certain studies come out very quickly and why other studies might take a long time and then what to take from all the, the results that we're seeing. Um, so just, just talking about the scientific method and how research is conducted and, and things along those lines. Yeah. So Sean, sorry, uh, oh, sorry to cut you off. Uh, of before we jump in there, uh, give us a little bit of a background of what your research is and what you do at the, uh, at the university of Waterloo. And, uh, I understand you're also, uh, an amateur triathlete as well. Yeah, so when it comes to, to athletics, I'm very amateur. But yeah, I I, uh, I do participate in in endurance sports. I haven't done a haven't done a triathlon for a year and some change, which correlates very much with the birth of my kid. It takes up all of my time, so chasing him is the biggest part. But <laughs> that's an yeah, endurance sport, there. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, I get my steps in. That's for sure. Um, yeah, so so the I I, I do I, I do dabble in the in in endurance sport uh, when it comes to to my day job i have a bit of research add but the the sort of overarching big picture thing is anything associated with with uh fluid flow and aerodynamics so uh, uh, a large portion of of things that i look at involve fluid flow um either involving either inside or around the human body so um you know the inside part isn't probably what you guys are super interested in but that would be cardiovascular and what we're doing right now is, uh, you know, sort of human phonation and speech and how that works. Uh, and then external and broad beyond that is, is the things, you know, very pertinent to what you guys are interested in, which is like, uh, you know, aerodynamics of cycling, um, looking at, at some heat and cooling studies in, in, uh, and also done some work on athletic recovery and, and technology for that. Oh, awesome. So you're kind of like a wealth of information then. Um, I think there's definitely a lot of uh, very relevant, you know, study interests for you there, specifically, of course, as you mentioned, aerodynamics of cycling and uh, and uh, heat transfer. So we're going to fire some questions at you to get a sense of what your take on this stuff is, maybe what your take on uh, the way forward in the sport is. And uh, and of course, we will also talk about the uh, the specific research. Sure. So I think the, the first place I'd like to start is just the general process that that governs academic research, because we're seeing all these studies come out lately where, you know, COVID-19 something something result, and it seems to change every day, or there's different opinions all the time. So you would think that research should always point in the same direction. So what, under normal circumstances, what prevents that from happening and how, how is everything vetted properly and what's the, the review process and, and what's your experience with that? Yeah. So that's a, that's, that's a very, very broad, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot of nuance in there that we could, that we could chat about. And, you know, it's, so touching specifically on, uh, on, on COVID and research associated with that, which is, which is obviously a big thing right now. Um, that's, that's the, general challenge with the university is how do we do research when essentially the labs are all uh you know everything is essentially shut down we're trying to figure out how to navigate this there, there are lots of lots of things in place that are we're trying to uh, sort of expedite uh specific research that that is that's going to be beneficial in the current climate 
um, and trying to get it through ethics approval and all of these things, which is stuff that we can that we can touch on. But um, so I, I wouldn't say that right now is it would be considered a very uh, representative pathway or, or or methodology that people follow for for research in the sense that uh, everything is basically halted except for. <laughs> Except for uh, things that are that can be associated with with something along, you know, trying to to help out with COVID. Um, so right now, uh, basically, the only way that you can get in to, to do research is if you uh, if you need a lab is if you're if you're doing something associated with with health calls. So looking at the peer review process, normally with engineering type journals and publications, um, it can take months and months of time. So I've been very curious lately how. They seem to publish a new study every week uh, with like one or two week old data. How do you have any awareness of how that gets through the review process so quickly? Because usually, it, like I said, it takes months. Yeah, well, the review process um, is is another one that's that's in a in a very unusual state right now. Um, it's not exactly clear what is going to be considered to be. Uh, well, well, let me back up. So, so typically, if you're going to be publishing a paper. Um, Especially uh, a study that involves that involves human subjects, um, the the human body is a horrible test bed. Like it, it doesn't do the same thing every day. It depends on so many variables that you don't have control of. Uh, it's a mess. I mean, so doing tests on people is 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 really complicated. And so the way that you have to to uh, to overcome some of those uncertainties is that you have to do statistics. So you have to have a large enough group of people that you've tested uh, and and you've done the test enough times, or in, in enough of a randomized way, uh, that you that you at least uh, average out or filter out some of the, the variability, not just between people, but also, you know, did I have a burrito this morning or did I have orange juice? That will change my my results in a in a given study. Sure. Um, so, the typical problem that we have, or the typical reason that something would take so long, is that you're trying to gather enough information on enough subjects. Um, you know, five is generally not enough. Ten, you're kind of, kind of getting there. But the more, the better. You see medical studies that involve hundreds. Um, you know, if they're talking about drugs and stuff, where they really are very much concerned about efficacy uh, and and impact, will have will be very very broad. Uh, typically, when you're talking physiology studies or something associated with with the the human body or human performance, you know, it's it's usually you can get away with, with 10 to 15 people. Um, so that would be the, <clears throat> typically you would be, be requiring that many people, which takes, you know, X number of weeks to test, depending on what your protocol is and so on. Um, in, in the COVID era, um, you know, what is enough people when you have a hard time getting into a, when you, when you aren't supposed to be interacting with people from a distance of less than two meters, um, so testing on people becomes difficult. So, um, a lot of the a lot of the stuff that's coming out right now that's you know there's there's studies associated with, um, you know, what is a what is appropriate distancing? If I cough versus I talk versus I sneeze versus any of those things, how far away do you need to be? Um, those studies are really it's what I've seen is you know it's a dude in his lab that's doing a couple of flow visualization tests and, and doing some gross measurements. Um, so it's, you know, um, as, since we're trying to get, since we're trying to tackle a very acute problem, I think some of the, some of the rigor isn't necessarily as required because you're just trying to figure out how do we, how do we curb something that is, uh, you know, that, that is rapidly changing. We're trying to, we're trying to learn things very, very quickly. And so we don't worry about the, typical rigor it's you know if this maybe works then it's then it's worthwhile and valid to to have to have out there um obviously you have to be careful not to not to do anything negative but right but then are you worried that you the results because you don't you know, the the amount of rigor involved in these studies is less um are you worried that the results are less meaningful less accurate because it does as andrew pointed out it does seem like there is uh, new information coming out all the time, and sometimes it's contrary to previous information. And is uh, is the lack of the the typical controls, you know, is that partially to blame? I mean, I guess where's the where's the greatest good? Is it is it getting more information out there, or is it getting more accurate information out there? 
Well, if you, uh, that's a, yeah, that's, that's a fair question. I think if you're a, if you're a medical doctor, your answer to that is probably different than as a scientist. I don't think that, I don't think that all of these things are going to, to stand up to the test of time and they're not going, you know, I think a lot of the, the preliminary information that's based upon very small sample sizes has a, has a very good chance of, of becoming uh, obsolete or contradicted as, as more information goes out. Um, the question is, are you doing harm or good? Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that a, a conservative approach to interpretation is appropriate. Um, but you know, we are trying to, we are trying to learn things, uh, and disseminate information so quickly to, as I said, to try to, to overcome a, an acute situation. So, um, you know, I think that if I was a, I, I think the medical doctors, they would say, is it, is it certainly going to help? No. Is it maybe going to help? Yeah. So is it worth trying? Yeah. I, I think that's kind of hmm. the, the mentality is as long as you're not, you know, as long as you have a, a, a fairly sound premise to think that you're not harming, uh, as we're trying to learn, as we're trying to process this information so quickly, um, you know, some of it will go by the wayside. But if it, if it has a possibility of doing some good, I think that there is perceived value in that. But I, I don't think that there's any... You know, I, I think that as this goes on and, and we start to see more and more studies and there's more and more data that's aggregated and more and more uh, sort of meta-analyses, I think that you're going to end up seeing that, you know, some of the uh, conventional wisdom or some of the thoughts uh, on what to do start, you know, start to start to gel and start to, you know, you start to see some of it paired away that wasn't necessarily on the same footing. It just happened to be, happened to be luck. I mean, we don't, you have to be really careful when you talk about an end of one study, right? You saw For sure. one person, you know, it just, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't have the, it doesn't have the stats behind it. Yeah. And that's a really important distinction. And I think, you know, I, um, I, I have all the sympathy in the world for the researchers, well, for everyone working uh, to end this, to contain this pandemic, but um, it's 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 almost like researchers are kind of screwed either way because if you, you don't get the information out there quickly enough, then you know you're being blamed for for sitting on something that could have saved lives. And then if you do get stuff out there, and then down the line, even if it is useful and it's helpful, as you say, um, but down the line it's proven to be wrong, then you're then it just fans the flames of of uh, the folks that uh, that think that there is. You know that that scientists and research doesn't tell us anything useful ever, which is sadly seems to be a growing uh, a growing voice of uh, of humanity. Yeah, yeah. Don't get me don't get me started on that. <laughs> well, I think there's two parts that are quite interesting with that. Well, obviously the malaria medication. I forget what that's called. Chloroquine, something hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, so something along those lines, and like that's a classic example of something just going well viral, for lack of a better term, but. Um, it, it became this miracle solution that had no scientific data aside from one area that happened to take this medication and having a lower incidence rate of COVID. So that's the, the case of uh, correlation versus causation. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's really dangerous when you start having uh, people with a, a significant platform espousing something for whatever, based upon whatever their agenda is, when you're in a when you're in a in a health crisis. I mean, I, I think that the I think that the anti-malarial is a is is a good example where um, kind of what I was what I was touching on earlier that is it worth a shot? Sure, you know if it's if it is possibly something that's going to help. Should we try it? Yes, we should. Um, should we bet the farm on it and be selling it as something that is that is going to be the end all be all? Of course not. I mean, it, it's, you know, the, the, there's a reason that we take a, a very principled reasoned approach to, to science is because we're going with the assumption that we're wrong. Like we hope that we're right, but we have to, we have to always, people are always going to be trying to prove us wrong. You know, and that's the, that's the strength and beauty of it is that, is that if you put forth an idea and it doesn't stand up to the scrutiny, that's, you know, I think the concept of failure is a bit is a bit wrong in this in this case because that is you're still moving the needle forward. You had an idea, you tried it, and it it didn't work out. But that's that's knowledge. And so when it comes to things like like medicines and 
particularly in a crisis like this, is it worth a shot, even though it's not based upon firm evidence? A qualified yes. You know, and, and this gets outside of my area of expertise, but just my, you know, as a as a person that dabbles in science, it, it is something that you, you 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 definitely want to try, but you don't want people in power saying that, yeah, take the snake oil. It's gonna it's gonna cure everything. That, that's just you know, that's just false and false hope. I, I'm enjoying how we're all tiptoeing around the politics of this and <laughs> trying not to point fingers. I'm from the U.S. I have to be careful if I want to ever go back. <laughs> that's right. They're listening. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's uh, it's definitely quite an interesting situation that we're in right now. And just having to to make that balance, that educated, uh, well, not guess, but educated decision about what to, what to test and what to introduce and what to push. Um, because a lot of these clinical studies and FDA approval can take years or tens of years sometimes for, for certain things. So it's obviously we can't wait around a decade for some kind of vaccine to come out for this. So I, I understand the need for haste, but you don't want to drop your scientific principles at the same time. Absolutely. And I think what you'll see, I mean, so I'm a, I'm a fluid mechanics person. And so there's a, a fair bit of fluid mechanics associated with this, right? I'm, I'm talking right now and I'm putting stuff in the air that, you know, if I was sick, wouldn't be necessarily great for people around me. Um, so I think that you're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of scientific papers about uh, specifics of disease transmission and such through uh, things like speaking and coughing and, and all of that that um, was was an area of, of some research before. But I think you're going to see a lot of you're going to see sort of a mainstreaming of it where a lot of people in in my particular area are going to be tackling that problem. Well, you saw that, right? Andrew and I had, uh, we recorded an episode, which Andrew, I didn't publish because of, um, I think there was new information that came to light that sort of superseded some of the stuff that we we, we had said. Oh, okay. But uh, there was an article on Medium um, that, uh, uh, I don't know, Sean, if you saw, it was a, it was a, a Belgian and a Dutch uh, aerodynamicist put together and it wasn't peer reviewed and they said it was, it was said, they said as much, um, but they, their conclusions were, or their suggestions were that it was safer to run if you're running or cycling, safer to run or, or ride side by side than behind somebody because of the way that particular, you know, the, the, the suspended particulate, the virus particles potentially would travel in the slipstream. Um, have you seen that, uh, not paper, <laughs> that article and, uh, yeah, I, I, I did see that. Yeah. So, what's your take on it? What, how do you feel about what their what their conclusions were? I guess speaking first to the just the the idea of doing these sort of quick and dirty things, um, I've seen that's not the only study I've quote unquote study that I've seen in where they've been doing, you know, really just a a uh, using using you know available computational tools that that. Uh, you know, you can get get results in 24 hours. Setting up a quick study to to demonstrate something, um, but this is this is why we have it's why we have peer review, yeah. right? Is to um, it, it's it was a neat it was a neat visualization. I would be I would caution anybody that would be taking it as gospel to 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 take some care because there's you know there's a there's a lot of difficulties in doing simulations like that. Um, I don't remember the specifics of what their conclusions were. I just remember kind of their their pretty pictures, which is about how I would how I would treat it, right? I mean, it's a it, it was a it was an interesting demonstration or interesting pretty picture. You know, if you want to if you want to draw any real conclusions from something, you have to you you need to you need to to set up your your test conditions and your and your cases with some care like it's it, it, it was a, a particular snapshot of you know what making assumptions about how some person is exhaling and how some person is inhaling and mm -hmm. and where the you know where where expired particles would be going um so i you know it's a, it, it's a neat idea um but and and i think that they were pretty honest in terms of it not being not being a rigorous study but there's there's a lot of these things out now because it's we're all sitting at home. We'd all like to be doing something to help. And so we do, we think, oh, if I cough, how far is that jet plume going to shoot out? Oh, well, I can make some assumptions about, uh, you know, 
jet velocity out of my mouth and I can make some assumptions about uh, particle sizes and how far they're going to travel and, and all of these things. And I can make a, I, I can do a, you know, a, a nice little simulation and I can demonstrate, oh, look, a cough goes maybe further than the average Joe thought. But it's not, it's, you know, it, it wouldn't be publishable in and of itself. So one thing that I find, well, one thing that I would probably not be surprised by is that breathing is worse than we thought, because I would assume, especially when you're exercising, um, the harder and faster you're breathing, the more likely these droplets and these particles are to be kind of torn off your, or well, removed from the surface and enter the airstream uh, and just get out into public spaces. So if you're running on a treadmill, for example, um, everything that you're expiring is a lot more likely to get in the air than if you're just sitting there uh, having a coffee. Um, just because you're breathing harder, those higher velocities, the entrainment of all the particles, it's just so much more severe. So in terms of uh, infectious diseases, it, it would be quite interesting to see how exercise or um, just that extra effort plays a role. Um, you know, as soon as you're outside, you have you have a lot of uh, you know inherent mixing just with the with the airflow going by, and, and there's a question of concentration. There's a question of how much uh, you know how how diffuse does the uh, does the the little do the little particles get in, in an airstream? Um, and so if you're you know if you're outside and you're subjected to even as somebody walks by, it kind of generates eddies that are going to mix things. Um, but if you're if you're generally in an unconfined area and there's any sort of any sort of convection, I, I think that's going to, to disperse itself fairly quickly. If you're doing something indoors and there's a, you know, I, I think as the more the, the space becomes confined, it becomes a concentration issue. Like I'm expiring each, you know, with each ragged breath I take on the step mill or on the, on the treadmill, I'm going to be gasping and wheezing and, and, and shooting this out. And there's not going to be an appreciable, uh, you know, airflow to, to displace that and diffuse that and mix it. And one thing I don't know is I have no idea what sort of not being a virologist or whatever that would be called. Somebody who, somebody who studies infectious diseases, but yeah, I think that's, that's we're going to go. Yeah, we'll go with that. Um, the, you know, I don't know what's the, what is the concentration that's, that's hazardous, right? I don't know. Is it 10 little one micron particles or do you have to, you know, is it a is it a, a good margin? I that that's something I don't know, but that's where concentration would come in. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's definitely been in the last I don't know in my very ad hoc research into this. You know, take it for what it's worth, listeners. But yeah, there's been a lot more. It looks like there's a lot more conversation about uh, about concentration, John. Exactly what you mentioned that it's not that you know if you do get a straight particle outside in the breeze that is different, very different than somebody who is a carrier in close proximity with not a lot of uh, air mixing, continuously expiring these particles into your face. So that's, that's a very, those are very different situations. And that's something that, uh, <clears throat> that we, uh, we should, I think, take into account in, in thinking about uh, what is safe and what is unsafe and uh, related in your, uh, I just, I just, heard on the news that I wish I knew which state this was one of the southern states um, they're looking to open it's Georgia uh, as they're they're you know they want to reopen the econ the economy they're looking to open gyms yeah. <laughs> which you based on what you were just saying Sean seems like the dumbest thing you could possibly do because if uh, you know to both of your both of you guys what you guys said um, about obviously the ex the uh, respiratory rate is higher when you're exercising that's a no-brainer we all know that um, and if you are an asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic uh, carrier and you are exercising and in an enclosed space with uh, with not a lot of airflow uh, that's a recipe for disaster that that's a fairly high potential r not for you specifically and it yeah, and a place where you inherently touch everything. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, yes, yes. I just, yeah, I don't get it. And uh, you're not just touching that thing that that person's touched, but you're touching everything else that they've touched during the day yeah, too. I, I try not so to think about just that. Just the way, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
that's when I think that's what I that's what I like. I just put my faith or my hope faith, I don't know, into the into the concentration theory that, you know, if somebody touched a doorknob, uh, three, three individuals after an infected individual, then the hopefully the, uh, you know, the, the viral particulate that's left on that doorknob isn't going to do me too much harm. And obviously I'll wash my hands and hand sanitize them and uh, uh, follow that proper hygiene. But uh, hopefully it's been it's been diluted. There was a uh, on the on the social medias, there was a video. I think it was an Israeli public health um, PSA. Uh, and it was a really good one. It was all about you know you have to sneeze into your elbow and not on your hand because the 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 video had a guy sneezing in his hand and touching a door and then somebody else touches it and then they touch an elevator button and then somebody else touches that button and then they touch something else and then this and they they the visual was this was like this spreading red paint that was uh, you know t- that would infect that their the hand and then the elbow and then whatever 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 until the whole city is infected from one sneeze and it's not exactly how it works but. Uh, you know, I think the, the the point they were trying to make is don't sneeze in your hands and touch doorknobs. It it is interesting, just as a n equals one kind of example. Things can spread very quickly, and I know people have said like they had no idea how often they touch their face until they try not to. Yeah, as soon as somebody says don't touch your face, it's impossible. <laughs> it's impossible not to. Yeah, you're gonna. Yeah. I, I think we're all gonna <laughs> we're all gonna end up as like Howard Hughes at the end of this because there's gonna there's so much information about, you know propagation of of you know you touch your face and this goes to here and and how many people get how many people touch that object uh, yeah I, I think we're we're all gonna have chapped hands and walk around with you know uh tissue boxes on our shoes <laughs> uh, what i'm curious about and this is a, a sidebar um but like how kids are, are dealing with it so you've got a little kid i've got well two slightly older kids but my five-year-old gets it like he's he's really careful around about avoiding other people and washing his hands and stuff. I just hope it doesn't you know make him paranoid for the rest of his life. I hope this this experience doesn't scar him because he's uh, you know he has to pay that much more attention now. Right. Well, so far my one year old still sticks his fingers in my mouth and in my eyes and coughs in my face. So I think he's he's unfazed <laughs> so far. Yeah, my my two year old doesn't get it. He's a little. He's far less far less interested in in uh, observing social distancing when he rides his tricycle. Like, no, you can't you can't ride towards those kids. Yeah, yeah. So I guess um, maybe let's take a bit of a turn here um, because we've been speaking about things that we're not experts on. Uh, Very but, true. But, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but taking a, a turn, maybe more towards your expertise, Sean. Um, it, it would be interesting to hear some of, you know, in the, the pre-COVID era when things still functioned normally and life was somewhat normal, um, just hearing some of the studies you've done. Like I was one of your victims or uh, test subjects, depending on how you look at it, for uh, for the, the thermal cycling study. Um, so maybe just some background on that whole study, including some of the challenges in setting it up, um, some of the logistics, you know, cost, timing, everything like that would be pretty interesting to talk about. Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I guess to 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 set up the set the stage a little bit, the the idea behind this or the question behind this was um, if you have somebody exercising in a uh, in a hot and humid environment, so they're part of their thermal regulation, you know, their their natural sweating mechanism, their their natural uh, evaporative mechanism is is compromised. It's not a profound statement to say that you know exercising in the heat and humidity is is hard right i mean it's you know you don't set marathon records in in really hot humid environments um but the the question that we were that we were trying to address is if you were to to remove heat from a from a very small and localized environment um and we were specifically looking kind of in the in the inner forearm area um if you if you just apply cooling at a at a very localized area, uh, are you able to sufficiently mitigate core temperature rise when you're when you're doing tough exercise in a in a hot and humid environment? Um, you know, there's there are lots of of, uh, of studies about ways that you can that you can you know mitigate some of the, the heat stress. You can be you know ingesting ice slurries. You can be wearing cooling vests. You can do all of these things. Um, we were looking to to see what is sort of the not necessarily the smallest area you could you could apply uh, cooling to and, and succeed, but could you could you in a smart way apply cooling to a to a, a region that is you know has some uh, 
vascular bed that's kind of near the surface um, and, and affect change and affect cooling. So um, what we did is we, we went to uh, went to DRDC, so the, the Canadian Defense Research uh DRDC. Oh, man. Defense Research and Development Canada, I think. Yeah, there you go. Thanks, Andrew. Um, so we, we we collaborated with with DRDC. So the, their facility there, they do a lot of physiology physiology testing in extreme environments, hot, cold, um, you know, underwater, all these things. Um, so they have they have climatic chambers that allow you to set heat and humidity. Um, and so so basically, our our interest was taking taking trained cyclists and and triathletes um putting them in a relatively uncomfortable situation so it was it was uh 30 degrees c and 70 percent relative humidity nominally uh and having them cycle at at uh 60 to 70 percent of their of their functional threshold power for 45 minutes and then monitoring uh heart rate respiration rate core body temperature uh local and 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 body average sweat uh so total water loss um, so monitoring a number of pertinent physiological factors um in in two conditions with and without cooling um so yeah andrew got to andrew was was privileged enough to, to be one of the participants um and, and actually i piloted it myself and when i first started i'm like i got on my bike i was like okay 30 degrees c 70 percent humidity didn't feel that bad um it got tough. <laughs> it, got, <laughs> and it got really uncomfortable. Um, and, and every, every, uh, you know, periodically we're, we were asking subjects for their, uh, rate of perceived exertion. So how hard did they feel like they were working and how uncomfortable were they? Um, and that just reminded you that you were uncomfortable and you were working. <laughs> so, did you let them you know, drink? A nice added mental, mental piece to it. Uh, nope. No, nope, there was there was no fluid intake, oh, um, wow. so we measured nude body weight before and after. Rough. Um, so to yeah, you know, we wanted to wanted to get total uh, total water loss. Andrew lost a fair bit of water. <laughs> had, to, had to bring in a mop. I think partly it might have been tears as well. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. So so yeah, it was. Um, but I, I guess touching on uh, Andrew on a question that you had earlier. Um, so to do that study, um, so I think we had I think we had thirteen total subjects, um, and it required you know you, you have to do a, a obviously a, a testing without cooling testing with cooling since you're trying to evaluate whether or not that has an effect. Um, so that's two bouts. They have to be a week apart for each individual. Yep. Um, they have to the the participants have to basically come in at the same time time of day. You try to have them eat and drink the same thing in advance you try to have them wear the same clothes try and have them you know roughly get the same amount of sleep so trying to get the setting the physiological baseline as close to the same as you possibly can you know uh, with the understanding that that there's still going to be some variability um and then you so a week apart 13 people and you're trying to coordinate with a climatic chamber there were uh four people that were that were running the test, so coordinating those schedules, and then just getting people that are willing to commit their time to to, to do this during you know during work hours. It's it, logistically it's it's pretty tough. Mm -hmm. So um, you know, thirteen subjects. Well, it, you know, statistically, sure, we would love to have a hundred, but practically, uh, you know, and each one's each time you're swallowing a core body temperature pill, so you know, you have to monitor what happens to that afterwards. <laughs> so there's, you know, there's, there's things that you have to, that you have to, um, you know, it's, it's not cheap from a, a human standpoint, from a, from a financial standpoint. Um, yeah. So, so it's, you know, it's, it's fairly involved doing some. So I've, I've got a little bit of a, of a, a weird aside question for you for, with those, um, uh, core body temperature pills, uh, they don't transmit, do you? Do they? Do you have to actually fish them out and then download the data? Is that right, or do they transmit? No, these actually transmit. Oh, okay, so you great. have a, you have yeah, a receiver. Thank God. That, uh, <laughs> thank goodness. I was going to say. Is, no, no, you don't. Yeah, and we didn't ask for them back. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Just, just don't go get an MRI. Make sure that you, you know, that's just, just please don't bring it back. Um, 
yeah, but but you know they're they're also not super cheap. Mm-hmm. So you know you're like, do I want it back? No, no, I don't want it back. But um, yeah, so it was, but but it was a it was a, a pretty pretty cool study. Um, I mean, to to what what you end up finding is that uh, by by cooling the inner forearm, um, just just kind of with I think the the we were kept them at like five degrees Celsius. We were able to to mitigate core body temperature rise by a half a degree Celsius per hour. Wow. So so we were cutting the test. We were cutting the test if people's core body temperature reached uh, 39.3 Celsius or something like that. Um, so, so essentially just, it, it wasn't where it was really a risk, but we didn't want to, to push it further. And so of the 13 subjects, five or six, when we weren't applying cooling, we had to stop the test early because they, they had reached that, uh, reached that threshold. And, and the, with the cooling, we were able to extend that. And so, you know, if you, uh, if you, if you're able to mitigate that by half a degree C per hour, you can, you know, you, you can, you can sustain a ride or you can, you can, uh, and the rate of perceived exertion, all of the thermal comfort was all, was, was all a bit better all by, all by pulling out, you know, uh, I don't remember what it was off the top of my head, but, um, 30, I think it was 30 Watts. Was it 20, 20 to 30 Watts? I think, yeah, I think, I think it was 30 Watts. Mm-hmm. That was going to be my question, which blows my mind because, you know, Andrew, when we, so Sean, I don't know if you listened to our earlier episodes, but we did a couple of episodes, one with Paul Larson, who's the, who's the slurry guy, the ice slurry guy. And then one Andrew and I did, uh, just by ourselves when we talked about kind of the, the, uh, the energies involved in cycling. And so the, the heat gain involved, if you're, you know, if you're, let's say using your, your own testing numbers, if you're, you know, if you're uh, on the faster end of the age group field, then you might be around 300 watts for threshold, 65, 70% is 200 watts. And if you're 25% efficient, that's 800 watts of, of thermal energy that, uh, that you're, um, that you're putting out there um and the fact that 20 or 30 watts which is you know what 20 20 would be uh two and a half percent or something like that right um of of your of your output that two and a half percent can make such a difference in core body temperature that blows me away like that seems that that seems to you know in my own mind not make sense well it's actually pretty spot on if you take the so if you take the uh so if you do a really really simple analysis and you you take the you know the average mass of the of the riders that we were using or that participated in the study yeah. uh, you take the the specific heat of the human human body uh, and, you, and you take and you look at the actual mm-hmm. uh, joules of energy that we extracted it it basically puts you at a half a degree Celsius. Uh, wow! Reduction. I I, I I obviously trust you and believe you but uh that just blows me away the fact that it's such a small you know, I, I wasn't i wasn't saying you were calling <laughs> bullshit <Yeah>, sean right. <laughs> um <laughs> all like me and my sitting here in front of my computer doing math in my head i've just i've just uh proven you wrong no it's just it seems like the the scale of it is uh is something that that is you know that doesn't make sense but i'm it's just it, i'm sure it works out it's uh but that's remarkable that's such a such a small input or i suppose an extra output if you think of it that way of thermal energy makes such a difference because that uh, and andrew and i talked about this because you know there's a very big difference uh, between being uh, being a half degree below your your uh, below a certain temperature when those when those core temperatures get high right at when you're at resting if you're 36 or 35 and a half it doesn't really make a difference but if you're you know 39 and a half or 39 there's a there you, you there's a very appreciable difference there well a nice thing is it's a, it's a change in slope right so you you uh the longer you the longer you you take that over the the difference the the, the bigger the difference mm-hmm. in the actual core body temperature right so um the Yes. Yeah, it, yeah. It's a. It's a. It, it was a nice. It, it was a nice finding. It was uh, one of the. Yeah. Yeah. To, to to give one, one in instance of you know why the, why it's difficult to work with, with the human body or, or subjects, we we had one, person whose data was just, 
totally opposite. Like just, you know, it, it was way, way, way different. And so, uh, I, you know, I, I happened to, to chat with the person afterwards. It's like, oh yeah, I, I before the, before the, se- the second test, I drank a whole bunch of ice water because I wanted to see if it would change my, to change my, uh, my results. I was <laughs> what like, an ass. <laughs> yes, it changes your results. Like, that's the whole point of why we asked you not to do it. So, yeah, so it was, that, was, that was ice water gate. I was like, dude, what are you doing? That was the whole point. That was why we asked you to do everything the same. So, yeah. So I don't think I'd actually heard that part of the story. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it was, yeah. Yeah. So, and, and so you essentially waste. You've got human nature working against you as well as, (laughs) as, you know, difficulty in funding and and experimental setup. And then it wasted, it was, you know, it's six hours of four people's time. So it was like 24 man hours down the drain, (laughs) down the drain. Mm. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just that the, it's not just that your physiology changes, it's that people can be a pain. And I guarantee you that's not the first time that this has happened in one of these studies. No, that, for sure. uh, you know, for probably sure. every time one of these is run, there's someone who likes to troll the results or just wants to be different or do something different or doesn't think. Or or they so don't think about it. Yeah, you say it's, yeah, it's incredible. Did you have anything to drink this morning? No. Did you did you drink coffee this morning? Yes. What? Yeah. So it's just, you know, they people get in such a routine that they don't you know, they don't even recognize that they did something. And so they're, they're not necessarily in this particular case, the person was, was trying to do it, but, but, uh, yeah, in general, you know, people just don't think about their routines. So looking at the actual results though, um, and let's use myself as a case, just because, you know, I don't have to worry about consent or anything like that. Um, if I'm bringing it up, I'm obviously okay talking about it, but, uh, the, first of all, it was one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever done. Um, both with cooling, uh, it was slightly less uncomfortable, but without was terrible. And I think I was about to get pulled without cooling, um, right as the test had finished because there was a criteria, a safety criterion that, uh, that had been set, um, for if you were at, or within a certain amount of your maximum heart rate for three minutes, I think. And I had been there for two minutes, at the conclusion of the test. So um, when I started, I think I was around 145 beats per minute at the target power. And then when I finished, I was around 178. Wow. Um, so, and wow, this is that's all, a big jump. Yeah. Well, and you can see it like if um, I had my, my heart rate monitor and watch on and I was gathering all the data as well, um, just because, you know, I'm a nerd and interested in that stuff. But uh, it was basically a linear slope of my heart rate with the uh, increasing body temperature. So as the core body temperature went up, uh, my heart rate went up as well. So the, the cardiac drift was incredibly apparent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that makes sense, right? Your, your, your body's fighting against the, the conditions that it's, that it's placed in. You're trying to pump that blood to the, uh, the periphery. Mm-hmm. One of the neat things from these studies, though, is when you do get results that are not something that you were expecting necessarily, but something you ended up measuring just for the sake of measuring. And, you know, you, you stumble upon these interesting discoveries or interesting data points. Uh, yeah, for sure. And one, one that, we, that we came across was that there, there appears to be a, uh, a gender difference. We didn't have the statistical power to say. We didn't have enough uh, enough men and women to say, but, but it, uh, sort of the trend or the preliminary, preliminary results were that, um, the cardiac drift for men versus women was, was different. Women didn't see the, didn't see the same effect of cooling as the, as the men did. And uh, like I said, it's, it wasn't powered for this, so we can't draw any conclusions, but it is, it's nice because you do these things and you say, oh, that might be if, if I want to go through the pain of doing this test again. <laughs> that would be might be interesting to to do a to to do a gender, you know, or to to do sex differences. That's interesting. Well, kudos for you for actually testing women because you know the kind yeah, of the that's disease the other big of, problem. of physi- yeah of uh, of physiology research is that it's always done on college age males. Yeah, so <laughs> I, there's actually a, a colleague here um, at the university and. Uh, her focus is on the the kidney, and she just wrote an op-ed piece not too long ago because all of the prescriptions for things like aspirin and such are are derived based upon uh, men, specifically white men, um, and so the dosages aren't 
aren't necessarily right for for women. Um, so she had a, a big op-ed piece on that that was pretty interesting. Like we're we're overdosing the half the population. That's a fundamental limitation of of any of the research is if you don't choose the proper test conditions or test subjects, then you're going to have biased data. Yeah, and and, and our you know, when you go through, when you go through ethics and such, I mean, you have inclusion and exclusion principles uh, or, or, uh, uh, inclusion and exclusion, uh, criteria. And, you know, often you're not excluding, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're not intentionally excluding certain populations, but, um, we recruit from a college campus, for example. So our age tends to be biased low. It's not that we're not trying to recruit people in their, 40s like me it's just that's not who we get so so then you have to be very you know you have to be careful in interpretation then so you try to get a broad cross-section but you know sometimes you're sometimes you're limited and if you're only looking at 13 people or 15 people in a study um, you you can't touch every single base in terms of getting all the different uh, ethnic diversity that you need and the gender differences and things like that so it's um yeah, it's it's a big challenge to get a very well produced study, um, and just seeing the cost and the time associated with all this, I can completely understand why there's just so little test data out there, so little uh, studies on you know endurance sports in general. I guess just because it is something that's fairly difficult to organize. Well, and there's also, I mean, there, there's also something to be said for, uh, and this is a, a a problem in in my field is that. Um, repeated tests and doing, you know, having a, another group do the same test again has a lot of scientific merit. When they do, uh, you know, when, when you do do studies in a lot of the, the medical fields, they will do, uh, you know, they will do aggregate study or, you know, meta studies of, you know, people that have done similar work in, in multiple areas and, and try to try to aggregate that data. But if you're trying to, if you're trying to publish results, you know, if you do the same study as somebody else, it, it's a value in the case in the sense that it brings up the end, but you don't see those. You don't often don't see those data because they're not going to make it into the into the peer reviewed journals because it's it's not you know it's not novel, which is which is unfortunate because it's you know those repeated measures are are very useful. Do you get the same thing in that lab doing doing the same thing? That is a really interesting point. I never thought about that. Touching on peer-reviewed journals there, um, I know there's a lot of discussion right now around open journals or open publications that aren't blocked behind paywalls, but uh, there's there's always going to be some bias with this because you, you're, you're dealing with people who, um, because of the academic philosophy, need to publish papers. So they're not going to be focusing on research that reproduces results or anything along those lines. And you end up with this, this whole biased culture um, and, and lack of real, I don't want to say lack of peer review, but lack of um, vetting of a lot of the research just because of this. So I remember there was a, a large meta study where they tried to reproduce the test results from something like a thousand different experimental studies. And they found that like two thirds of them couldn't be reproduced the way that they were published by the authors. So that calls into question the peer review process. Um, there's also this bias with uh, publications and journals focusing on positive results instead of non-results, which I would argue are still valid. Um, but it's just—I think it's just the the bias of the entire system right now is kind of angled in maybe the wrong direction, or it has a bit of a misdirection to it. Yeah, I think I think that's a fair criticism. I think that there's a lot of—I don't think that the the academic research system and the publishing system is 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 perfect. I mean, there are there are disciplines that actually do it quite well. Like a, there are a lot of disciplines in physics that they do work on the idea of repeatability. You know, when you get into some of these, these, you know, particle physics and some of these, these really expensive, large studies, they will, you know, if a, a group finds a result, then other groups will work to reproduce that result. And that's a, you know, that, that has, that's perceived as having a lot of value in that community. And it does, you know, you, you need that, you need to, you need to corroborate findings and make sure that it wasn't a, a blip in data. Um, that, you know, for, for one reason or another, that doesn't, that doesn't, you know, spread into all of the, all areas of science. And even if it's the, even if it's not human-based 
work. If I do a study in my, in my wind tunnel, if I really want to quantify the uncertainty of my result, I need somebody else to do that study in a completely different wind tunnel with completely different equipment, all of the, you know, all the same type of equipment, but in a different lab and a different, you know, and, and see if they get the same results. And that's how I can actually quantify how good is my result. But we don't, we don't do that. You know, we don't, there's, you're never going to get grant money to repeat what somebody else did, at least in, in some of these, in some disciplines. So, and, and so it becomes, it becomes tough when you're, when you're doing studies with humans and you can, you know, it took us, I don't know, four months, five months to, to do the study with 13 people. I would love to do that with, with 10 times that. I would love to be able to look at sex differences. I would love to be able to look at these things, but it's it's it becomes a, a real question of practicality. I was going to ask: Is uh, your motivation just because you're a sadist and want to torture that many people, or? <laughs> I, I figure as long as I did it first, as long as I did it myself, you know, then that's. Uh, <laughs> I guess I guess there's a word for that as well. <laughs> you do do painful things yeah. to yourself, but yeah. And then, then you're a masochist. Yeah, that's right. As much as I am a fan of uh, of participating in these studies, and I've I've participated in a handful, sometimes they are like just super uncomfortable. I think my my personal worst scenario story was uh, they were they were testing um, the efficacy of fish oil, and one of the and it was on they they did a bunch of bat they did a battery of tests. Um, there was. Uh, uh, there was a time trial. I, th- I forget if it was time to exhaustion or just average power over a certain duration. But um, one of the tests they did was a maximal voluntary contraction of of the quadricep. I forget which one. But they, in order to to so they they had you you know strapped to a load cell and then and maximally contract, maximally try to extend the knee. But then they also stimulated the nerve uh, electrically in order to get the contraction, and it was horrible because basically it's it's they're they're electrically inducing a cramp in the in one of the biggest muscle groups of your body. <laughs> number one, number two, it enervates right in your groin. So they're like jabbing you with an electrode, like you know, with, uh, in a, in a sensitive area. And if they do it wrong, and if there's not enough gel, it burns you, which is which is fun. But also, um, even if it's done right, it's a it's a it's it's essentially like a, a massive quad cramp. I mean, it doesn't last very long, but it is incredibly unpleasant. So, anyway, that's. <laughs> so what what sort of uh, what sort of compensation did you get for that? Uh, a, a high five and, <laughs> a, and results from a VO two max card test, basically a med card test. That's, that was the that was my compensation. Important gift card or something? <laughs> no, not even that much. I ended up with a uh, with a pretty permanent chronic shoulder injury from doing a uh, participating in a shoulder study once so yeah oh, no. i uh, i know what you mean at the end of my test um you know having felt pretty miserable about uh what i just gone through i asked the lab manager or the the lab supervisor there what the worst test he had seen over his tenure there was and he said, well, he started off by saying, well, before we had to do a lot of ethics uh, questionnaires. <laughs> you know, it's like going to be good when, it, when the opener uh, is like that. Yeah, we won't get away with this now. But um, he, he said there was a they were investigating. I think it was just uh, motor skills when you were extremely cold oh, no. and wet. So they had someone standing in a cold shower for three hours um, and Every 10 minutes, they had to do a test, but uh, I think it was like a 10 or 12 degree water temperature, and it was just pouring over them. So he said this was like the most miserable thing he had ever seen. He said he was cold standing next to the people who are getting the water dumped on them for three hours. Um, So I can't even imagine going through that. That's, yeah, like it, (laughs) well, there's a reason that the ethics wouldn't approve of that anymore. Yeah, that's, that's cruel and unusual. So the uh, the other area I kind of wanted to touch on, um, just kind of wrapping up the, the research discussion, is funding. Like you had mentioned, there wouldn't be funding for repeating studies and things like that that don't don't produce new results. But in your experience, where where does the funding usually come from? Uh, so yeah, so that that varies a lot by by country. Here in here in Canada, for for general research, uh, you know, associated you know, across all sort of faculties and disciplines um there are there are federal grants uh through through it's called NSERC CIHR and SHRC um so those are the sort of national funding agencies that that have fairly large research budgets that that fund some work um 
there's provincial level. Um, when you get to when you get to sport, um, the, the you also end up with with some of the uh, the not for profits and 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 government groups that are associated with the Olympics. Um, so so one that that we've done some work with is is own the podium um, where they're they're looking to to fund uh, any to, to fund both technology advancement, training advancement, all of these things uh, that can lead to lead to better performance in the Olympics. Um, but outside of outside of that, getting getting support for for funding or, or getting support for research in uh, straight athletics can be can be tricky. Um, a lot of physiology studies that I've that I that I know of. Uh, you know, if you have a medical slant, then you can get then you can get through the the uh, Canadian Institute for Health Research. Um, but the most, I, I, you know, I would say, I, and I don't know the I don't know the, the stats on this. I don't know exactly what the percentage breakdown is. But but a lot of a lot of funding comes from uh, for fundamental research comes from from the government. Um, Canada also has a, uh, a strong connection with with industry so uh if you can if you can convince people that the work that you're doing can can benefit a particular Canadian industry or particular particular company uh then that it's a bit uh it's, it's a bit more realistic to get to get support or matching funds for that just knowing that it's such a difficulty finding the money for studies and having maybe the, the source of funding kind of govern what uh, what topics you're allowed or able to research. Um, it, it helps to shed some light for a lot of people, I think, on just the challenges that you face. It's not just a free-for-all where you've got piles of money sitting around and you can you know, go buy fancy lab equipment everywhere. It's, uh, it's quite a challenge to make sure that you can make ends meet for all your students. Yeah, and then some dummy drinks a, a pint of ice water and wrecks your results, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right, exactly. exactly. Yeah, it, it, it is a... It is tough to get the support, and you have to stretch your dollars fairly far. In the sense that, you know, in order for me to, to run a study, I've got to, I, I have graduate students that you're, you know, your graduate students that you're paying. You have, you have uh, consumable equipment. You have, you know, your, or you have capital equipment. You have, you have consumables. You have uh, cost for publishing. Sometimes you have uh, a big part of that is is still a big part of the budget goes towards student funding, but. Uh, yeah, you, you know the the dollars aren't aren't big, and they and they get spread pretty thin. So I guess for everyone who's listening, uh, maybe lobby that your your local government provides more funding to to universities because it is a tough world out there, and it's. I mean, we're seeing the importance of having good academic facilities right now with the ability to do this COVID nineteen research because we don't have a chance to buy and develop a whole bunch of new tests. We have to rely on the equipment that's already in the labs and the people who are already specializing in that area. So um, yeah, just the available funding and the available uh, researchers to do that kind of work are, are crucial at a time like this. Um, obviously, I'm not saying athletics or engineering research is uh, maybe under the same limitations in terms of time frame, but it is. It, it highlights some of the issues that could be faced when when dealing with a similar situation. Hmm, good point. Well, you also, I mean, the, you also want research to be proactive, not reactive, right? You want to be, you don't necessarily want to be in the situations where you're, you're having to do things in, I mean, acute situations arise, but what you'd really like is you'd really like to have, uh, people that, you know, you'd really like to have the, the funds available to do work when somebody forecasts something as being an issue, as opposed to, Oh, oh no, we've got this big problem. Let's try and solve it now. You know, it's it's nice to have some it's nice to have some foresight and, and support that. So one really interesting thing that could come out of this from the point of view, I guess, of epidemiology is uh, I know Google and Apple are talking about this tracker that they're working on where you can um, through anonymized data, or at least initially anonymized data, you can figure out who you've been in contact with. So it could be something used to follow the the transmission of disease and trace it back to where it might have come from, which is going to be incredibly useful in any future outbreaks. Um, but that tool didn't exist 
previously and the discussion hadn't happened, I would probably say that before this outbreak, the privacy concerns would have outweighed any arguments in favor of it. So so maybe that we've been forced into this situation has been good for some areas of research and some areas of development like that. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, one, one example I would give is that a, a friend of mine uh, a year and a half ago had this idea of, you know, I bet viruses spread by speaking. And he tried to get support for that. And it's like, oh, yeah, no, 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 no. <laughs> now he's looking fairly prescient. Right? <laughs> when is that but, ever going to be relevant? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but but there's, uh, you know, now there is. Oh, hey, you know, why don't you get that proposal in? Let's let's see what you can do about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, funny how things work. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, we've probably uncovered a lot of questions or answered a lot of questions that people might have had about the the research process in academia. Um, So, I mean, you're not all professors sitting around in suits smoking pipes with elbow patches on your uh, tweed suit jackets, but um, maybe some of you are. But um, I know you keep yourself pretty busy, Sean. So Yeah, I got into this so I wouldn't have to wear a suit ever. (laughs) Nice. That's a good good life goal, right? That's right. Yes. Well, thank you very much for, for taking the time, Sean. It was uh, it was a pleasure to have a chat. Yeah, it was my, that was that was great. It was my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Mm-hmm.